can't afford to just finish a song in a day and throw it out to the rest, send it off to the boys and move on. If, it, if that song has potential in our minds to be on the album, then I feel like I'm not good enough to maybe get it done in a day. So I'm not just going to give myself that rule because I don't have the capacity to do it and give it, give it its best chance at being a great song. Okay, so we are here with Sam and Elliot from The Rubens, and we're actually sitting here at your label's HQ, Mushroom Group, here in Sydney. We are, yes. Thank you for joining us on the One Year Later podcast. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So it has been just over a year since you released your third album, Lola Rue, in July 2018 it was, and I just want to hit the listeners with some stats really quick. So Lola Rue debuted at number three on the ARIA charts on July 15 last year, and it was sandwiched between... The Gorillas and Florence and the Machine, and topping topping the chart was Drake's Scorpion, but that was top the chart bloody everywhere. And you stayed at number three for two weeks, and then the single with Grammy nominee Sarah Aaron's uh, "Never Ever" is platinum certified. The lead single "Million Man" is gold, and as part of your album tour, you supported Pink on her 42 date arena tour of Australia. So when I read a few, these are just a few of the things that happen around that album. When I read them back to you, how does that feel? It feels like a decade ago for me. Yeah, me too. It's, it's yeah. crazy, honestly, that just being reminded that that was a year ago is mental. Yeah, and a lot happened, I guess. It was all happening back then. I think we'd, we'd started the Pink Tour. I remember when you, when you mentioned where it came, like where the album came in the charts in the first week. And I remember being on like in Perth just about to start the Pink Tour when we found out that it had got number three. Yeah. And uh, it's weird to think back to then. It was great, but my God. Yeah, it feels, feels like a lifetime ago. It's really weird to hear all those stats. They've all been just squashed into that short time. Scary. Well, what was happening in your lives before the recording of the album? So had you topped the Hottest 100 with Hoops when you were writing and recording Lola Rue? No, that was in, uh, was it twenty? That was tw- 2016 that you topped it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we'd, we hadn't quite got into the heavy part of writing for the record then. I mean, we had demos, we're always writing, but we weren't in that stage yet. So that kind of happened and I think probably extended our touring schedule a little bit so we didn't get into making Lollaroo just as as quick as we would have if that didn't happen. And creatively what was going on what was inspiring you and what were you kind of obsessive about around that time do you think? Just trying to write another hoops. <laughs> <laughs> nah. The people like it quick. <laughs> what can we do let's do another one. There was a little bit I think I think it was mate I, I don't know what I was obsessing over when when we started writing the next thing there was definitely an element of like in the back of our mind that the last song that we had was the most successful song that we'd had but we weren't we definitely weren't going to go and try, try and write another one because Elliot wrote that one in his sleep pretty much um, while needing to do a wee wee at night so I don't think we're ever going to recreate this the the environment to make another song like that it was just working out how to make another album and what direction we're going to go in and, and who to make it with yeah and for those playing at home so hoops hit the aria top 10 when it came out and then it also topped the triple j hottest 100 in 2016 which is the largest public voted music poll in the world so massive massive deal so there would have been a bit of nervousness around record releasing your next singles i guess trying to top yeah, that I think- I think also, like, we were very lucky in that I think Hoops winning the Hottest 100 for us was, like, a really, like, career-affirming thing where it's like, okay, we're allowed to do this. People enjoy what we're doing, so we might as well keep on doing it. Let's not think too much about it and jinx it, you know? 
I think going into writing after that, it was more just about like us enjoying the process and making things that we're proud of. So we're like not afraid to do that really. It didn't really constrain us. It kind of like freed us up because it was, that song was actually like a departure from production and sounds that we'd ever used really. Like we, we, we did our first ever synth, I think on that song. Like we were always so like against anything except for guitars generally organs and vocals like and bass and stuff so we were hoops felt like we were like pushing our boundaries even though when you listen to it it really doesn't now i listen back to it i'm like man that was pretty normal but um it was us trying something new and then the fact that us trying something new was our most successful song made us feel like all right we can just write whatever we feel like we want to write at the time and I feel like you did a lot of new things on Lola Roo. Like, mm. tell me about The Bunker. So you usually, this is the first time you recorded in Australia, is that right? Your other yes. two albums were recorded in New York? We, we recorded the albums there, both both album one and two. Um, but the song Hoops we had written when we'd come back from New York on the second record. So we actually did that individual song in Sydney. So that's the only, only recording that we'd done in Was in that Sydney. why you were like, let's record in The Bunker? <laughs> I, I think it was just like, man, we love, we just wanted to try something different really. I mean, I'd happily go anywhere in the world and have a holiday and try and write and uh, try and record an album. But we had this opportunity with this amazing place that we'd, we'd spent a lot of time, which is The Bunker in Camden, New South Wales, which is where we grew up. And our friend, um, Tim Jurek, he was renting this World War II bunker that he'd had for years and years. And it had been kind of like a creative party space kind of thing. It was, you know, we'd jam there till six in the morning or we'd just have bonfires outside. And it was just a really awesome social place, but also a place that not anyone could just go to. It was quite tight knit and it felt like it was just the right time for it. We talked to Tim because it wasn't really ready to be a recording studio. Like they'd started the plans to build it into a recording studio. It was a cavernous room that needed a lot of work. It was literally a bunker. It was literally a huge (laughs) bunker, yeah, a big bit of concrete. Um, So we talked to Tim and uh, Will, our bass player, who's best friends with Timmy, and we said we'd, we'd like the idea of recording there, but we need to do a lot of work to the place. And so we said to Tim, like, if you can get it ready for us and by this date when we want to start recording then let's do it and he was like yeah let's do it has Um, any albums been recorded there or songs since since uh, it was turned into a proper studio these new south wales did a a few songs there i think they might have done an ep there or something um i'm not sure if anyone else has i i uh i think some like mates like avows the darty shades local band as well played some stuff there as as well i think it's also like a really good just jam space so there's been plenty of bands going through there so would you record there again? Yeah, I would record there again. I mean, Will, the bass player in our band, he's just um, completely revamped it and he's he's turned it into an even better studio. He's just he spent a lot of time making it pretty special. I haven't even been out there since he's done it, but it's meant to be pretty cool. So I'm open to it. Um, but I also like the idea of recording in a new place. I think I, f- I find it really hard to be creative doing the same in the same place. You know, writing in the same place or recording. I think I think it's something exciting about being in a new place so and did you bring your producers to you am yes. i remembering that right yeah so our producers torbert and wilder schwartz they're brothers from the states both grew up in new york mainly in kentucky between new york and kentucky and now one of them lives in brooklyn and one of them lives in la we've known them for about five or six years because we toured with them on the laneway tour while they were in the band for LP, which is one half of Run The Jewels. We found out that they'd been producing or helping produce the Run The Jewels two albums of the, the I think it was Run The Jewels two and three. 
and we didn't know that they were even producers. We just sort of hung out with them when we were in New York and had some beers and hung out. So I was in spending a bit of time in New York at the time and I hit up Torbett, the guy that lives in Brooklyn, and said I wanted to talk about maybe doing something. Oh, sorry, no, I hit up Wilder because Wilder was in town and Wilder was going to run the Jewel show. So he said, come along to run the Jewel show, then we'll have beers afterwards and we can talk about it. So I hit him up and they were actually open to it, which is crazy. And honestly, I don't know how long it was between that conversation and them, them coming and staying in our hometown and making an album with us, but it's just the fact that it even happened is crazy. So where did they actually sleep? Like it was like an actual bed and breakfast, not an Airbnb, but an actual like That's little awesome. bed, bed and breakfast right around the corner. And they loved it. They, like, they lapped up the Australian culture. They, they loved Lamingtons. They loved VB. <laughs> anything that we told them was Australian or like a quintessential Australian thing. Like we could have told them anything. We should have actually. But they Bunkers were just so Australian. into it. Yeah, totally. This is, this is what everyone does. Don't you have one? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and Never Ever. So that was written with Sarah Ahrens, obviously Grammy-nominated um, songwriter. She wrote Alessia Cara and Zed's Stay. Um, she's written with Dua Lipa even. How did writing with her compare to your usual songwriting process? Oh, man, it was pretty eye-opening for Sam and I because it came out of the blue. Like, we got an email saying she wanted to work with us when we were in New York, I think, in Brooklyn, finishing off the record at Torbett's place. We got an email from her manager, I think, saying, hey, we'd like to tee up a session. And Sam and I were like, yeah, sweet, let's let's do that. Because it's something we kind of wanted to get into as well, like writing for other people. So we went into the session at the end of the year after we'd come back from uh, recording and finishing the record, thinking we're just going to write a song with this songwriter and just see what happens kind of thing. And went in and she's just like, she's very, she's like lightning fast with like, lyrical ideas and melodies and very like she puts herself out there like Sam and I are very bad at kind of critiquing each other and being vulnerable in like in the writing room in the studio but with her it's just like doesn't matter it's like ideas just off the cuff just go five hours later the song is finished and we were just like you know when we we're in the room writing it Sam and I still thought oh this will be a song for someone else and then I think a week later maybe our manager heard it and was like why isn't this song going to be on the record? And Sam and I were like, because it's a duo. Rubens don't do duos. We hadn't even sent it to our manager. No, we, we just left it. Through. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> How the hell was that session manager. last week, guys? I was like, oh, it was all right. Yeah, it was good. You probably hear the song some other place with someone else singing it. And then, you know, having Sam and I are then, you know, being told it could be a Rubens track, listening to it again, we're like, actually, no, this is one of the favorite, our favorite songs that we've written. It can be a Rubens track, you know, just like with Hoops. Hoops for us was something different we hadn't tried before. A duet was something we'd definitely never thought of doing before. So it's, for us, it was like, let's, you know, push the boundaries again, see if we're allowed to. So how did that change your songwriting, how you attack songwriting moving forward? You were saying that you weren't very good at critiquing, critiquing each other in the writing room. Has we're good at critiquing each other. We're just not good at being open. I think that's yeah. why we're not good at being open because we're good at crit critiquing each other. <laughs> we're, we're just honest with each other. Yeah. yeah. And we're, we're just shy. Even with each other, like it, I, I don't know. I think I think that that process with Sarah and we've done a few sessions since there. We went to LA and did some songwriting because it is something that we're actually interested in doing outside of the Rubens, which is writing, helping other people write songs and just you know becoming more comfortable in those situations. Um, yeah, so so seeing the way that Sarah works and other people work, it has definitely made us more comfortable with just throwing ideas out. And if no one in the room likes it, you just move on. It's not going to hurt, you know. 
I remember chatting to her and she was saying that she, if it's not done in half a day, then it's not, the song's not there, move on. And she said she's written songs in half an hour and then taken the rest as like a beautiful lunch break with the songwriter that she's writing with and just had the rest of the day just to chill with each other. So she's very, I guess, um, very intuitive on when something works and when it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I don't know. She's, I I can't really, like, talk about Sarah in any, like, she, she's such an enigma. Like, you, she can describe herself better than anyone. Like, we did this Q&A with her by our side the other day. And it was really interesting hearing it from her perspective, how she writes and stuff. But I can't even talk about it because it's, 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 like, prodigious kind of stuff yeah. but yeah she she de- i can definitely believe that she can get more work done in half an hour than most people get done in a week yeah and so your songwriting process now did that did that change it in terms of of course you want to try new things and work with new people but in terms of um when are you like a bit of a terminator when it comes to no that's not working let's move on or are you still have, I, do you have- I am i think i think i've i think i've realized that when I'm writing songs of my own, at least that if, if something doesn't feel right, I'm just going to scrap it and start it and, and try a different angle and try and work something out a different way rather than sitting with it and trying to nut it out myself. I just, I, I, I'll scrap a drum beat or something. I'll just scrap it and, and try it and start fresh. I'm not very good at finishing songs though. And Sarah never f- doesn't finish a song. She's yeah. always, she, she writes a song a day and she's, I think she's never, not never not finished it. Whereas you're pretty good like that, right? You're like, yeah, except it takes me forever. Like I, I sent a demo a few months ago and I think our manager was like, oh, cool song, man. Um, how long did this one take you? And I responded, 10 months. Like that's how long sometimes it'll take me to finish an idea, whereas Sarah's got this kind of just gung-ho attitude. Once she sits down to write the song, the song can be finished by the time she stands up you know, and leaves the room, which I think is something you can't really, you know, you can hear that's that's, she can tell you that's the way she works and you can try and work that way as well, but there's only so much you can do. Like she's naturally gifted in doing it like that. And you know, you can take little bits of advice from that or experience, but for you, maybe it's not going to work that way because she's just a freak for want of a better, a better word. Yeah. And I think as, cause we, cause we are a band and we, we, we are going to release a body of work. That's an album, you know, every couple of years, we can't afford to just finish a song in a day and throw it out to the rest, send it off to the boys and move on. If, it, if that song has potential in our minds to be on the album, then I feel like I'm not good enough to maybe get it done in a day. So I'm not just going to give myself that rule because I don't have the capacity to do it and give it, give it its best chance at being a great song. Sarah does, but also Sarah works... works um, she writes a song every day. And I don't know how many she gets on the radio every year, but it's, not, it's definitely not 365, you know what I mean? One Year Later is presented by APRA AMCOS, a key business partner both locally and globally to over 100,000 Australian and New Zealand songwriters and publishers. With reps and creative spaces in LA, Nashville and London, APRA AMCOS travels with its members. Whether you've relocated or it's just a flying visit, APRA AMCOS can provide space to members and their teams on a short-term basis in a fantastic location. Go to apraamcos.com.au for more info. So tell me about the campaign behind the album. So 
what did you do or did you do anything differently in terms of your other album campaigns that really worked? Was there anything that you did at press or anything that you did to engage fans thinking back that um, really tracked well? Man, it's so hard to think back to the, that kind of stuff because it's so collaborative between the label and our management and us. Um, it's generally a lot of the label and the management are doing a lot of brainstorming and they're bringing us ideas for how we can promote something in a different way, which is becoming more and more important. I think we did, we did a collaboration with this brand Pony, which is like a shoe company from America, and they, they basically got a pair of sneakers and made 10 different pairs of sneakers painted with our album art kind of thing. And each sneaker had a track name on the side. That's and awesome. we got a pair each, which was sick, because we wanted our own individual sneakers. That's but why you did it, yeah. That's yeah. why we did it. <laughs> but uh, then we also ran like a competition where, where uh, fans could win the sneakers if they helped share and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was quite cool. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. and it is fun. Like I'm, my brain doesn't work like that. So coming up with an idea like that, an original idea, like when it comes to like marketing, I'll, I will never will. But I love that we still can do that kind of stuff yeah i think also like we were doing a lot of more like directly talking and responding to fans like in the lead up to the record and we put on a show in our hometown of camden because obviously it was the first time we recorded music in our hometown it was kind of like it felt like the right time to do an event in our hometown and so it was like that i think that was our album release the day album launch. we had yeah. a big you know party and a show there a lot of things just like instead of having this barrier between us and the fans, I think this run we'll more focus on because we're so bad at social media. Like we were like, we need to, you know, really All of learn you, how to not, use not this. one of you is like We a try, which, but it's like, it's... Elliot's the best at social media in my opinion. So that's why he does the Ruben social media. Like, and yeah, he's so the one that says we're all bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think, I collectively think our social is not too bad, to be honest, but I guess you're being critical aren't you, of yourself. I don't know. I it's think hard. it's hard because you then compare yourself to other bands and you see levels of engagement that they might have that's really, really good or they do things that's really like creative and inventive and you're like, why didn't we think of that? But I think as well, like you get kind of, you, you, get, you can get bogged down in it really easily instead of just, you know, we're a band, let's just write songs. Let's write good songs and play shows. Let's get, let's get on the radio, let's sell songs, let's sell tickets. Yeah, and, the and last then worry about social media. Photo, you know? like yeah. That's, yeah, I understand it as a tool that you can that can help build all the the stuff that we give a shit about, which is playing live and all that stuff. I understand mm. that it's a tool for that, and some bands have used it really, really well to gain fans. But I don't think it's for us. It's not a huge focus. It's something that we do almost begrudgingly. Yeah, and I think true fans would really respect that as well. Uh, understanding and everyone understands, understands that everyone has social media everyone understands how hard it is to try and who are you who are you going to be on social media it's and the it's same not just for a one thing like it's not just facebook twitter snapchat instagram you know there's so many other platforms that artists are now expected to be yeah youtube prolific fans on. on youtube all yeah it's, it's, tiktok what the hell is TikTok? have you watched it yet stop inventing them so <laughs> that would be great. Too many apps. Can't someone just come in and buy the lot of them and then we just have one massive, yeah. oh, that's probably a bad thing. Big, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I... Is that a new world order? Oh, God. Yeah. Would, yeah. I don't think I've ever... I'm trying to think if I've ever seen a, or followed a band that I found entertaining or engaging in any On way. Social media. And these are bands that I love who I know have awesome personalities. But I, I still can't think of one that I find 
interesting enough to follow and continue yeah. following for a few months, more than a few months. I guess fans are different. I, th- I guess if you're, a, you, you were trying to break down and that, like you said, when we're, like, we're trying to promote this album, you are trying to make it feel more personal and get pe- people to sort of know your personalities and stuff. But man, I think it's really hard when I think about it. Yeah. And that's why it's so important for you to have your team at Mushroom and your team at Ivy League who totally. can help you with that as well. And also being honest about that with your team and saying, so here's where we shine on stage oh, and in the studio. Knows that. It's been seven years. Everyone knows <laughs> yeah. that like, yeah, we're open to suggestions. They're, they're helping to, you, you know, out. That kind of stuff. Oh, that's great. So you guys have been really busy since the release of your last album. So you've toured the US and Europe. You did MTV Unplugged, which is massive because yeah. they only recently just launched that in Australia and New Zealand. So yeah. huge. And this is my favorite thing that you've done. So you've launched your own monthly unsigned band night in Sydney and it's just wrapped up this um, Chucka Buckers. Yeah, so Chucka Buckers, yeah. the first iteration of it is has finished and we're just looking to move it to and, to re- and relaunch it mm. at another location. How did that come about? Who was in the room when th- this idea was being floated around? I think we, I'm, the, I'm trying to think back to the a conversation that we had. I, I feel like it was maybe during the Pink Tour I remember having a big conversation about what it was going to be. I, remember, I think we were in New Zealand backstage at the Pink Tour and our manager was there and we were talking about wanting to do something. It was his, it was his idea that we, we do something because of how things were going in Sydney with like, you know, live music and lockout laws and all that kind of stuff and the lack of opportunities for up-and-coming bands these days. We were just thinking about how we could do a band night and where we could just get our favourite new bands to play and we could go and watch them and have beers. It's amazing. It's a very simple concept and um, it's quite fun. And how did it go? Did you? It was great. Was it we, we, you we discovered so many. I mean, you, obviously, you discover these bands through whether it's Spotify or Triple J on Earth or anything like that. But seeing them live in a little tiny pub is sick. Mm. Yeah, and and we just finished our Chucka Buckers tour, which was us taking um, two bands around with us to regional towns in New South Wales and doing a little tour of Chuckabuckers, which was really fun. I just love that the idea happened while you were backstage supporting Pink. <laughs> you were like, I, well, I think it did happen Like that there, was yeah. what was on your mind when you're, you know, you're supporting this massive global artist and you're thinking, how can we get other local bands to get to where we are? Well, it's almost just like giving bands a, a, an opportunity to, to support, you know, like we were supporting someone getting a leg up essentially from Pink, trying to win over her fans. Um, and that's how it works from the, all the way at the very bottom when you're starting. Um, so it is nice that we could try to give back in some way. Um, yeah, and it's, it's just a fun time too. And fast forward to really recently right now. So you've teamed up with US hip hop heavyweight Vic Mensa for your new single, Falling Asleep at the Wheel. So that premiered um, on Zane Lowe's Beats 1, but it really premiered at Splinter in the Grass, right? Yeah, yeah. How did. was that? Was, was the reception good? I think it was good. I was too nervous to look at the crowd the whole time, pretty much the whole set. <laughs> I had to take people's word for it when we got off stage, but it felt good. Um, what did you think? What were you nervous about? Were you thinking that you could see in their up. eyes that they... Oh, oh just, I see. You know, first time playing it. I'm like, I don't know if we've really premiered many or any tracks live like that. I mean, secretly live, like we didn't Ideally, announce that's it. that's the best way to premiere it because no one has any reference. No expectation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was just nervous, like... Are we going to nail the song? How's the song going to sound in a live environment? Vic wasn't there, so obviously we had to have his performance to track. Like, are these technical things going to line up properly? That was um, the nervous part for me was that the, yeah. the, all this 
there's so much so much production that we'd never used before we we had all these led screens and stuff brought on stage and we'd, we'd filmed vic in la and his you know rapping to camera so we could put that up on all the screens so like i don't know i was just picturing it all going wrong and just being like it, it would be a, a really funny joke yeah. to watch we just definitely that all, all had unravel. nightmares <laughs> yeah. of every possible thing going wrong leading up to it but it didn't it was great yeah and it was in the end it was it was great and it was fun you know you never know how people are going to react and also when i see a song live for the first time and i've never you know it's so hard to groove to it because you don't know what's coming next but um by like the second chorus i did see a lot of the crowd sort of bopping along and moving and i guess that's all you can really ask for on a first listen and so Triple J have added it to high rotation and it's, I think you're now um, perhaps crossing over to commercial with that track. Do you feel, do you have the same feeling around when you released Hoops and when you released Never Ever? Is that feeling of this is going to be our next big one? Oh man, I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to, no, I never think that that's going to be our next big one. I always hope that it's going to bring us new fans. That's pretty much it really. I hope it continues our career for a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think you like you you have your head so like stuck in it as well when you're doing it when you're recording when you're building up to the release of something and then you know the song might come out and you're on the road like we we played Splendor and then the next week we were doing the regional tour the Chuckabuckers regional tour. So it's not like we're sitting and looking at stats and things and checking whether it's getting spins in certain places we're doing other stuff. You know, we're playing shows and it's kind of you don't really you lose perspective of where it's at and then hopefully you know your manager will send you a nice message saying hey it's been you know added to triple j rotation and stuff and it's like okay sweet we're doing something right well yeah when you're when you're you're a band at our level on an international scale which is very low you're not going to like release something and then see an instant reaction no one's going to lose their shit. You're not Taylor it's, Swift. Exactly. It's yeah. going to be a slow build and you're going to get bits of good news hopefully throughout that. And the, and the campaign is being worked by people in different countries and our label. And, you know, it's, it's all happening. But for us, we just get an email now and again saying, yeah, like it's been added to a radio station in Germany or something cool. And that's pretty much all we find out really. And then I guess like for, I think with Never Ever, it had probably been out for a few... We had expectations for the song, I think. We, we were hopeful, but... When that one came out, it was the same thing. It was kind of like an anti-climax. You put it out and you're like, What's, what does everyone think? You don't really know for a few months. And then we went on tour and everyone was singing it back and that was the first time where you're like, okay, this is connecting. And I think, you know, that it'll be the same with this song, hopefully. How did it come about with Vic Mensa? Tell me that your producers had something to do with it. Did they? No. No? no. It was they're um, so embedded in that um, realm. They don't know Vic, which was funny mm. when I told them. They were like, yeah, like, I've heard of him. I was like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we, we were looking for a, a rapper. Um, we'd always wanted to do something in that world, if we could, and we never really had the right track for it, and this one felt right. So we, we just got – it was the publishing company that we were working with over in L.A. I think someone within that company – new Vic's guitarist or it's something like that I actually need to get the exact story but mm. it's through Vic's, Vic's guitarist he's like I want to show you a track see if Vic, Vic likes it he played it for Vic and Vic liked it and was up for it which all seemed like oh we're like yeah sure okay cool it's not gonna happen though but then yeah it happened really quickly I was back in LA like within two weeks in Vic's studio watching him watching him do the verse yeah it was really cool it was a trip mm. but yeah 
And this is my last question. This is a question that we seem to ask all of our um, guests that come on the podcast. What do you hope that we're talking about a year from now when we talk about the Rubens? Oh, man. Well, that's a good scary. question. I like that question. Yeah, thinking back to all the things that have happened since the record came out, I don't really have a perspective on what happens in a year anymore. It seems to, like, I feel dizzy just thinking about it. To think that a year from now, I don't know, I hope people are... Like, we're working on new music and things. That's the hard thing, is that, like, what are we doing within the next year, realistically? Make, start making our new album. What are people going to be talking about? Oh, I hope the Ruben's next album's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. They'll be talking about how I they hope, hope it's I good. I hope they're really hotly no, anticipating. I hope everyone's just, or everyone's whispering about it. it's, it's, they're about to drop it. I can't believe it. It's going to be so good. Yeah, that's, that's pretty <laughs> that's much all we can hope for. Maybe you need to start fake. So- no, this was a terrible idea. I was going to say you should start fake social media accounts and put that Whoa, shit out there. Yeah. But no, you're terrible at social media. So no. I'm, yeah. I'm going to be bad <laughs> social media. It would be pretty legit looking, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah. Make the make it Ruben's number one fan. That's your Twitter yeah. handle. You've got it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sam Elliott, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. If you write or perform songs, you need to connect with Apra Amcos. The Music Rights Organisation collects songwriting royalties for over 95,000 songwriters and composers. It also supports music creators through networking events, workshops, mentoring sessions and grants programs. Go to apraamcos.com.au to find out more.